Well, it's already been a good morning, and thank you so much for being here. Whether you're here in person or joining us online, we're grateful that you've made the choice. It's an encouragement to us that you've chosen uh, to join together in worship of our God this morning. And if you have a Bible with you, or if you want to use one of the ones that's provided for you there in the pew, would you open it up to Mark chapter 10, please? And if you'll turn to Mark chapter 10, then that's where the vast majority of our lesson this morning will be taken from Mark chapter 10. And we'll begin reading in verse 35 here in just a moment. As you're turning there, I want you to think about this idea. That Jesus comes up to you, and Jesus, who has all power and all authority and all might, asks you, what do you want me to do for you? What would you say? What would you ask for? And how would you ask for it? I was talking to my dad last night about uh, what I was planning to preach on, and he was telling me what he planned planned to preach today. Uh, And we were talking shop a little bit, and I was talking about this lesson, and he said, you know, uh, something that I think about a lot in my prayers is something I've started doing is I've just started saying please a lot more in my prayers. I realized somewhere along the way I was asking God for all of these things in Christ, and and I wasn't really saying please like I ought to. Well, if Jesus came in person and said, what do you want me to do for you? I think it would be pretty easy for us to have a, a humble attitude where we say, please, will you just do this for me? But in regard to what it is that you would ask for, do you know immediately? I know. I know what I would ask for if he were to ask this of me. Or do you have to stop and think about it? Now, would you have to take some time maybe to say, well, if this is what he's asking, then I want to get it exactly right. Maybe that describes you. Maybe something doesn't come to mind immediately. But if you were a blind man begging by the side of the road and Jesus asked you, what do you want me to do for you? You would probably know immediately what your answer would be. Jesus uses this phrase, what do you want me to do for you, explicitly and exactly only twice in the Gospels. And those two accounts are found in several of the Gospels, but they're found back to back in the Gospel of Mark in the 10th chapter. So would you read with me beginning in Mark chapter 10 and verse 35. Mark chapter 10 and verse 35. Jesus and his disciples are on the way to Jerusalem. And on the road, he's doing some teaching, and James and John come, we learn from Matthew's Gospel, with their mother, and they ask this of him. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Um, Barrett used the word baptism earlier. Sometimes baptism is used symbolically as it is here. He's not saying you're going to be dipped in water. He says you're going to have to go through a... Uh, an immersion in something, right? Can you go through and suffer the way I suffer? Can you go and teach the way I teach? Can you die the way I die? Can you be baptized that way is what he's asking. And they said to him, with such irrational confidence, we are able. Yes. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. 
And with the baptism I am baptized with, you also will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John, because they didn't think of it first to come and ask this of Jesus. But Jesus called them to Himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever desires to be first shall be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now we would do well this morning to just consider that one passage, that one account where Jesus asked the question, what do you want me to do for you? It's a powerful account all by itself with lots of good applications we could make. But this morning I want to do something a little different. Instead of just considering this one account, I want us to keep reading. And I want us to consider this account, verses 35 through 45, along with the next account in verses 46 through 52. Do you remember these pictures when you were growing up? Uh, when I was a kid, they were found in Hallmark's magazine. And, and so you'd go up to the library and get that you weren't allowed to write in them unless you ordered them yourself at home. But you would try and find the differences between the two pictures. And that's kind of what I'm asking you to do this morning. You've heard this account of James and John and their interaction with Jesus. What I want you to do as we keep reading, I want you to see if you can spot the similarities between these two accounts, and there's several similarities, but also see if you can spot the important differences between these two accounts. So between Mark chapter 10, 35 through 45, and what we read now, Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. Read with me, if you would. Now they came to Jericho, so they're still along the way, they're not to Jerusalem yet, but they're to Jer Jericho, and they're about to turn up the mountain, uh, turn toward the west to go to Jerusalem. As he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. Now when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many, uh, so Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. And they called the blind man saying to him, be of good cheer, rise, he is calling you. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabbi, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. So, do you see some things that are the same in these two accounts? Do you see some things that are different? Let's see if we can go through some of the commonalities between these two accounts. And you probably saw these as we read, or many of them. And I'll say this is not an exhaustive list. You maybe saw some others that I'm not going to put on the screen this morning. 
But it's the same trip to Jerusalem. Obviously, this is uh, taking place at the same time. In Matthew's Gospel, these things are found back to back as well. So they're going down to Jerusalem, and it's on this trip that that these things happen. They both came to him. The text says, they came to him. The text with Bartimaeus says, that uh, he came to Jesus. So they're coming to Jesus with a request. Uh, They're both formally identified in the text. Did you catch that? James and John are called the sons of Zebedee, and Bartimaeus is specifically called the son of Timaeus. Well, that's what Bartimaeus means, right? So you think about Simon Bar-Jonah was Peter's name, that he's Simon, the son of Jonah. Well, Bar-Timaeus means the son of Timaeus. And so Mark is giving us a formal identification here. Hey, we need to know who these characters are. Jesus asked the exact same question of both. It's the same in English. It's the same in Greek. It's phrased exactly the same. Both call Jesus a form of teacher. Um, It's a different word that is used, but in John chapter 20 and verse 16, remember when uh, Mary Magdalene sees Jesus in the garden after His resurrection and she realizes that it's Him. She uses that same word, Rabbani, it's you, right? And John helps us out. He translates that Hebrew phrase, Rabbani, with the Greek phrase uh, that James and John use for Jesus here, a phrase that just means teacher. So they're calling him a form of teacher. It's slightly different. We'll talk about that more here in just a second. But they both call him teacher. They both refer to Jesus in what we would call kingdom terms, right? With Bartimaeus, he calls him Jesus Son of David, you're you're the one who's the Messiah who's come to set up the kingdom. And then James and John, they don't specifically refer to His kingdom, but what do they ask for? They say, let us sit on your right hand and on your left hand. Well, where are they sitting? They're sitting on thrones in Jesus' kingdom. We want to be your right hand man and your left hand man in this kingdom that's coming and your glory that's coming. And then finally, we see that the onlookers were displeased with both. With James and John, it's the the other apostles. And they say, why didn't we think of this first to ask for this? And so they're displeased with them. With Bartimaeus, it's like, be quiet. Quit making so much noise. Jesus has important places to be and important people to see. We don't need to hear from you. What Mark is doing, by giving us all of these commonalities, these similarities in the text back to back, he's saying, hey, Pay attention. These two things go together. You need to see that this there's something going on here. And now that we see that, now that we see these two texts go together, we can examine the differences to get the point that Mark and Jesus and the Holy Spirit who inspired Mark to write this and God who actually helped make these things happen by His providence the same, we can see the point that they're trying to make. And the point is not found in the similarities. That's just to tell us they go together. The point that that is being made is found in the differences. And and this is a device that is used throughout the Gospels. Um, All four Gospels do this, where they have two accounts put together that are similar, and then it's by contrasting the two accounts that we see what it is that Jesus does or doesn't desire from us. So let's look at the differences between these two accounts. 
obvious, um, an obvious difference is their sight, right? Uh, James and John can see physically, and Bartimaeus can't see physically. But if we think about spiritual sight, a common theme in the Gospels, we see a contrast. That there is spiritual blindness with James and John, while only physical blindness with Bartimaeus. By spiritual blindness, this is what I mean, that that they don't see what it is Jesus is trying to accomplish. They have this physical concept of the kingdom. They're worried about where they're going to sit on thrones in Jesus' kingdom, and Jesus has just told them His kingdom doesn't begin with thrones. It begins with the cross. Look earlier, just before these events, in Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 31. Mark chapter 10 and verse 31. Jesus says to the rich young ruler, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. Now, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And they followed Him and were afraid. Then He took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to Him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. As Randy read for us so so powerfully earlier this morning. And the third day, he will rise again. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Hey, can we sit on your right hand and on your left hand in, in your kingdom? You ever had this experience with your kids? You know, you're talking to them about something that's really super important, and they need to get this, and they need to see this, and then they ask some off-the-wall question that doesn't relate at all to what you're talking about. Well, James and John here, it's even worse, because Jesus is trying to tell them the nature of His kingdom. He says, me, I'm the Son of Man, and I'm going to have to go to Jerusalem to suffer and die on a cross. And they say, hey Jesus, can we talk to you for a second? When you go to glory, can we like sit on your right hand and on your left hand? Don't you think Jesus threw up his hands and say, were you not listening? Did you not hear what I just said? In my kingdom, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. You want to be great. You're going to have to serve. You're going to have to sacrifice. You're going to have to give of yourself. Well, of course, we see other differences as well. They're asking for glory, right? Bartimaeus is just asking for mercy. He cries out for it multiple times. They're acting from a place of pride, while Bartimaeus is acting from a place of humility. They acted deceptively and manipulatively. Several of you kind of chuckled a little bit when they come to him, and they say to him in verse 35, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask, right? They don't say what it is, what they desire from Him. They just say, well, you just promise to do whatever we ask you for. And Jesus, of course, doesn't fall into that trap. He says, well, what do you want me to do for you? Matthew's Gospel tells us it's even worse. It's not just that they kind of take Him aside away from the other disciples to ask Him this question. It's not just that they try to entrap Him in giving them whatever they want. Matthew says they sent their mom to do it. They sent their mom to go and ask Jesus as if somehow that's going to soften the blow and He's more likely to give them what they want. It's just the opposite, isn't it, with Bartimaeus? He acts openly and honestly. 
He screams in front of everybody, Son of David, have mercy on me. And they say, be quiet. Say, I'm not going to be quiet. Son of David, have mercy on me. And when Jesus calls for him, it's interesting, there's just this little detail in the text. What does he do? He throws off his garment and he runs to him. How difficult must that be for a blind man? But he didn't care what anybody else thought. Couldn't see him anyway. All he cared about was Jesus. And that's where his focus was. He doesn't need to manipulate Jesus or deceive Jesus. Here I am. Please help me. They acted in self-belief. Can you be baptized and drink the cup I'm about to drink? And what do they say? We are able. Yes, we can do it. He acted in faith. What was it that Jesus says to him? Your faith. Your faith has made you well. It's your belief in Me, not yourself, that leads to your ultimate salvation. They called Jesus teacher, but the word they use for teacher is just a very generic Greek word. He calls Him a very specific word. He calls Him rabbi. Now you, as Bible students, you're probably familiar with that word rabbi, right? So that word rabbi means master, But by the time of the first century, it also came to mean your teacher, the one that you followed after. There were lots of rabbis among the Jews, and so your rabbi, your teacher, was the one that you followed. But even more powerful than that was this expanded form of rabbi, which is rabbinai. And that doesn't just mean teacher, it means my great teacher or master. They acknowledge that Jesus was a teacher. He says, you are my great teacher and master. Um, They were insiders, weren't they? They had been walking and talking with Jesus for uh, multiple years by this point. They knew Jesus. They knew His teaching. And they should have known better even than to ask the question that they were asking. Go back to Mark chapter 9 if you would. Mark chapter 9. In verse 33, this is earlier, probably weeks earlier. And when he came to Capernaum, uh, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What is it that you disputed among yourselves on the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and a servant of all. Then he took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him, the little child, in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So he's already established what greatness in his kingdom looks like. He had established that all the way back in the Sermon on the Mount, if we're being fully honest. But it's not just that. If we drop down to chapter 10 and verse 13, he reminds them of this just before the events that we're talking about this morning. Then they brought little children to him that he might teach them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. Seriously? You don't remember what he did just a few weeks ago and wanted the children to come to him and said, you've got to be like a child? When Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased. I've already taught you this. And he said to them, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for such is the kingdom of God. 
Assuredly, I say to you, whoever who does not receive the king, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. And then the rich young ruler comes to him, remember, and one thing he lacked, he had to give up all of his riches. And Jesus says it's difficult for a rich man to enter heaven. And they say, well, who can be saved then? And in verse 31, as we read a moment ago, but many are who are first will be last, and the last first. If anybody should have known that this was not the right attitude for a citizen of the kingdom of God, it should have been these insiders who had heard all of this teaching over a couple of years, who had just been through this same speech from Jesus multiple times, and yet still they missed the point. Bartimaeus was an outsider, not just among the disciples, among society. He was there by the side of the road begging because that's all he could do as a blind man. And he probably didn't know much about the teachings of Jesus. Certainly not like what the disciples did. But he grasped who Jesus was and what Jesus offered better than them all. Finally, James and John and their actions led to division. The disciples didn't like what had happened and so Jesus has to take them all aside again. Bartimaeus and his actions well, it led to growth among the disciples. Because Jesus tells him, go your way. He doesn't even say, follow me. He just says, go your way. And you know what way Bartimaeus wanted to go? Wherever that man goes, I'm going. And he followed after Jesus. The contrast is clear. The contrast is stark. But what does that contrast mean for you and for me? What, what do these differences teach us? Well, I suggest that these two accounts are about our attitude and how we approach Jesus. Do we approach Jesus like James and John with pride and manipulation seeking our own exaltation? Or do we approach Jesus like Bartimaeus with humility and openness seeking healing? Let's make application together uh, as we draw our lesson to a close Receiving our requests from Jesus based on these texts requires at least three things for us. If Jesus actually did come and say, what do you want me to do for you? In order for us to receive the thing that we desire, the thing that we need, it requires three things for us. And as we think about requests from Jesus, I want us to think about these three things in these three areas. We request Forgiveness from Jesus when we make confession of our sins and repentance. We request things from Jesus when we come to Him seeking salvation. And we request things from Jesus when we go to Him in prayer. So what three things do we need to take with us as we go through these doors? Consider this. To receive our requests from Jesus, it requires openness instead of manipulation from us. And I want to think about that in terms of our confession and our forgiveness. When we confess our sins, when we seek forgiveness, there needs to be an openness in our hearts. Not a desire to hide, not a desire to manipulate. Because it is only when we are open about those sins, open to the Lord at least, open to those against whom we have sinned, maybe open to everybody if that's what's required. It is only then that we can receive the forgiveness that we seek. 
Turn in your New Testament to 1 John, if you would. 1 John. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. That's the problem, right? We have sin. That's the reality. And these are not people outside of Christ. John is writing to Christians. And we as Christians sometimes still fall into sin, fall back into sin. And if we say, I'm not sinning anymore, not ever, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So what is the solution to that sin? We know that we can't live in sin and walk in sin and be right with God. You just talked about that. In verse 9, if, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I'm talking to Christians now, those who have put Christ on in baptism. That, that solution is so simple, isn't it? I have sin. I have to deal with that sin. What do I do? I confess and I repent. He'll cleanse me of my sin, of all, all unrighteousness, whatever it is. And that is so simple, sometimes I think there's a temptation for us to manipulate that process a little bit. Uh, We think, perhaps, that we can trick God, or we can use God's own grace and mercy against Him. That somehow I can commit sin, and oh, I know I can just confess and repent later, and everything's going to be all right. It doesn't work that way. We have to be open with our sins. We cannot hide our sins. We talked about David and his great sins in our Bible class this morning. Uh, Turn to Psalm 51. We stayed in the text in 2 Samuel 11 and 12 this morning. But here is David's heart and his mind after he had committed that sin and had been uh, convicted of that sin by Nathan the prophet. Immediately he confesses. But we see where his heart was in that confession. We won't read the whole psalm, but notice the first four verses with me. After his sin, in confession of that sin, seeking forgiveness, David says this, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned, and done this evil in your sight, that you may be found just when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Have you ever thought about how we talk about our rights And we have certain unalienable rights as Americans, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Have you ever thought about how forgiveness is not an unalienable right? Forever promised to us by God. And sometimes when a a gift is offered over and over and over to us, we forget that it is a gift. That there are conditions placed upon it. And we've all seen that, maybe even in our own lives in in a physical sense where the generosity of one who is giving a gift is acting in mercy and grace, when that gift is not appreciated, and maybe they withdraw their favor from the beneficiary, the one who's receiving that gift, that grace, and the one who's been receiving it, somehow they are the ones who's, who are insulted and, uh, and offended. How dare you withdraw the things that you're doing for me? 
Um, I'll admit, I've fallen into that trap before. Um, for many, many years, uh, since before I could remember. On Christmas, uh, my grandparents on my, on my dad's side, uh, they don't give gifts, they give checks. And let me tell you, a check is a pretty good gift. Um, and, and over the years, uh, as I've gotten older, that the amount of that check has increased a little bit. And it was great when I got married because all of a sudden the check doubled. It was wonderful. And then I started having kids and there were add-ons for that. And it was, it was great. It's a wonderful blessing, a wonderful gift at Christmas time. Then a few years ago, um, we were there at Christmas time and we got our little envelope and I opened it up. And that check was significantly less than what it had been the year before. And what was my initial response? Oh, I'm so grateful for this gift. I'm so grateful. My initial response was, hey, what's the deal? (laughs) This is less than last time. I mean, it's supposed to go up, not supposed to go down. And sometimes we can fall into that trap with God, I think. God has given us so much. And he promises us forgiveness. But our attitude when we come to God cannot be one of manipulation. It must be one of openness. I don't deserve this. I know my sin. But I am so grateful that God is willing and able to forgive. That was David's attitude here, wasn't it? And though we are disciples of God, and though we are Christians trying to live as we should, We continue to be unworthy of the granted favor that God has given us. We are not worthy of a second chance or a hundredth chance or a thousandth chance or whatever one I'm on. And there is not a stitch of entitlement or taking this process for granted in David's words. There is no presumption that God is required to do this for David. David was totally open to whose fault this was and against whom he had truly sinned. And though David had manipulated that whole scenario with Bathsheba, that's what he had done. He had manipulated it. He hid his sin, but it only brought him heartache. And it was only when he confessed, and confessed openly, that he had peace. Go back to Psalm 32, if you would. Another psalm about the same occasion. And David says in verse 3, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. That's what it's like to live under the shadow of sin. But I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Praise God. Not just for David, but for me. That openness instead of manipulation can bring about true forgiveness because of true repentance. Secondly, receiving our request from Jesus requires His mercy instead of our own sufficiency. And especially we need to think about that in terms of salvation. We know that we cannot earn our salvation. The only way by which we could earn salvation is if we lived perfectly. And we have thousands of years of evidence under the old law that that was not possible and man could not do it. We know that we are not saved by our works in the sense that we earn things by our works. We know or should know that we are not able to save ourselves. If you turn to Romans chapter 3, this is kind of the uh, 
baseline, slam dunk text that we use to show that this is the case. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 23, you probably are familiar with what Paul says. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We chose to sin, and because of that we fall short of the glory of God. But that's kind of a nice way of putting it. The more graphic way of putting it is the way he expresses it beginning in Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There are none who seek God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb, and their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what it looks like. And until we see our sin and our own insufficiency to deal with that sin, it is only then that we can come to God to appeal for His mercy, to appeal for His grace. As he says in verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And don't misunderstand me, that doesn't mean that there isn't anything that we have to do. But it does mean that we haven't earned our salvation or that we were sufficient for our own salvation. What we all must do in order to be saved is cry out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And then make the confession, Rabbi, I want to receive my sight. I want to make you my teacher, but not just my teacher, my master. For I will submit my will to yours. And whatever it is that you require of me to receive this great gift that you offer, I am willing to do it. Because I know that it is by your mercy that I must be saved. And then finally, receiving our request requires from us desperate need instead of calculated want. And maybe we can apply this most directly to our prayers. Go back to the original question. How would you respond to Jesus saying, what do you want me to do for you? What is the desperate need in your life that you cannot fulfill for yourself, that you need Jesus to fulfill? Now don't misunderstand me. Again, it's not wrong for us to ask for wants. That's not sinful to ask for those things. But don't be surprised if we ask for a want if the answer is no. Because that's not what God promises. God promises our need. And so my question is, what is it that you really need when you examine your life? Well, that's what God promises to give. Is that what I should primarily be praying for? I believe that it is. For God to provide for my ultimate spiritual good, I need that. For Him to build the fruit of the Spirit in me, I need that. In regard to the things that we pray for, what do you pray for a lot? And how do you ask God for those things? I pray for my kids all the time. Um, And as they get older, um, Maddie's not here this morning. Maddie's going into junior high next year. Can you believe that? We didn't have any kids when we moved here. Now I've got one going into junior high. Pray for me. Pray for her. Pray for teachers and administrators. Just pray for everybody. Everybody related to that, right? 
But what do we pray in regard to our children? Do we pray for God to help me raise my children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? I want to pray to God for Him to keep my children safe physically, sure. But let's be honest, that's a want. That's not a need. What I need, what I need is for God to keep them godly. For God to keep their souls safe. To keep them from spiritual death more than physical death. That's my need. And I'm going to pray for those wants, but I should not neglect to pray for the need. What about in regard to my prayers for others? For God to help me to provide for others? Do I pray that? I I pray for God to bless me physically, sure. That's something that's fine to pray for, but that's a want. It's not a need. What I should pray for is for God to allow me to be a blessing to others through the things that He gives, whatever those are. For, for, For God to help me to use my money and my house and my car and whatever else I have physically in service to Him and service to others. That's my need. Am I praying for that? What about in regard to others and the Gospel? Are we praying for God to open doors for the Gospel in our lives, in this community? I can pray for this country to allow me to continue to have freedom in our assemblies and freedom in our worship. That's a good thing. I'm praying for that. I hope you are too. But that's that's a want. It's not a need. What we need and what we should pray for is for that whatever freedoms that we have could be used in influencing others to Christ. And even if some of those freedoms are taken away from us, may it be to God's glory and to expand His kingdom. That's my need. And that's what I should pray for. Do we pray for this church, for Timberland Drive Church of Christ? Do we pray for this church to grow? Do we pray that it will grow so that we can be bigger? Well, maybe we want that. And that's not a bad thing to want unless it's so that we may take pride in our numbers. That's wrong. God forbid that that's our reason for growth. What we need is for souls to receive the gospel and come to Christ. For us to be better together because of those who are coming to Christ. For us to grow in faith, to grow in number, and have more resources to do God's work. That's our need. Are we praying for that? We need to have the attitude that we see in Bartimaeus. That we have some desperate needs that must be met. And we go to God in faith and in prayer because we know that He can meet those needs. And yes, there are things that we want, but those things are secondary to the needs that God can fulfill. And if you're not yet a Christian, you know what you need? You need salvation. And Christianity offers all sorts of wonderful blessings that uh, you might want in your life. Physical blessings normally come about in living a Christian life. You have physical help from your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's promised you by God. But it is so much more than that. Your spiritual need of being made one with God once more, of submitting yourself to Christ so that you might have hope and purpose, not just in this life, but in the next. And what's available to you this morning is a gift far greater than even eyesight to the blind. It is is salvation to those who are perishing. It is hope to those who are lost. And so we encourage you this morning to come with humility 
an openness to receive God's blessing when you put Christ on in baptism. And you can do that even now. If you come now, what together we stand and while we sing.